the next uh, proposition, um, one of our more lively uh, propositions, <laughs> bring in a little bit of the politics uh, of the day. And the proposition is, Beijing will effectively utilize the uncertainty of the Trump administration to firmly establish China as the leader of Asia. So if you'll please take out your, uh, your clickers and uh, as many of you as possible, please uh, cast your vote. The advent of Donald Trump's presidency has given rise to doubts about whether the United States will continue to be the standard bearer of the liberal world order. The Trump administration's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Paris Climate Change Agreement have stirred anxieties in capital cities around the world. No region has felt this shift more acutely than the Indo-Pacific, where the United States maintains five treaty alliances as well as numerous security partnerships. Trump's policies unquestionably present an opportunity for Beijing to make headway toward its goal um, which I believe is its goal of becoming the leading power in Asia. Can China effectively seize this opportunity? To debate this question, I am pleased to welcome on my right, Professor Chen Dingding, who is Professor of uh, International Relations at uh, Jinan University, and he is also the founding director of the in, in Intellisia, how do we pronounce that? Intellisia Institute, um, a newly uh, established think tank that's focused on international affairs uh, in China. And then to my left is uh, Dr. Evan Feigenbaum, who is vice chairman of the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago, uh, which uh, is an independent center that was set up by uh, former U.S. Treasury Secretary and Goldman Sachs chairman uh, and CEO Hank Paulson. So I will uh, we'll look at the vote first before uh, we get started. Ah, we have, <laughs> we have a, a huge gap here, is that 79% uh, saying that Beijing will effectively utilize the uncertainty of the Trump presidency to firmly establish uh, China as the leader of Asia, and then we have 22% uh, voting against. So, um, all right, you got your work cut out for you, but we're gonna start with Chen Dingding. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Boni, very much for the invitation. And it's my honor to be here to share with you some of my observations of U.S.-China relations. And uh, I have to confess, I've never participated in high school debating team or college debating team. And English is not my first language. So if I don't win this debate, you, you know where to blame. <laughs> and looking at the uh, pre-debate voting, well, I guess I have an easier task to do. All right, so my assignment is to argue for the proposition, basically saying that Beijing will utilize uh, the uncertainty in this Trump administration to uh, further establish its uh, position in Asia and even beyond. I'd like to divide my uh, argument into three parts. In the first part, I will talk about what specific uncertainties we can find in the Trump administration. And the second part, I will talk about what other 
possible scenarios besides Beijing's efforts to establish its position in Asia might look like. And finally, I will talk about China's future role in the world and whether China can indeed become a regional leader or even a global leader in the long future. So first of all, I think we should be clear that today we are entering perhaps a new era at the global stage, not just because Chinese President Xi Jinping declared that China is entering the new era. This is so because when you look around the world, when you look at Europe, when you look at Asia, when you look at here North America and even Latin America, so many new changes are happening today. And we might or might not be entering a new era, but I think the emerging evidence is suggesting the former might be more likely to occur. So in that context, we have here, more than a year ago, here we had shocking victory by then candidate Donald Trump. Now, more than a year after his uh, election victory, we are facing this question. And I think, first of all, we needed to dis distinguish actually between the certainty in the Trump administration and other uncertainties in the Trump administration. Actually, I find at least there's one certainty in the Trump administration, which is his approach to global affairs, which again is the American first approach, which I think will be certain, will be certainty for the remaining uh, three years of this Trump administration. So that, as, that certainty, ironically, actually leads to three kinds of uncertainties that I think are driving this question and driving this debate. The first uncertainty is at the global stage. If you look at what Trump's rhetorics have been over the past year and what his policies have been over the past year, then you see that very clearly. For example, when Trump in early part of this year announced that the first thing he would do is to withdraw from the TPP after his taking over of the White House. He did exactly that. And that immediately generated tremendous amount of anxiety and worries and of course uncertainty on the part of many Asian countries or in Asia Pacific region. And later when he announced that US would withdraw from the Paris Accord, that again made many European countries very nervous and also some other developing countries around the world. And later, more recently, his decision to sort of sever the relationship with the UN, uh, even though it's not completely done yet, that already has caused many worries on the part of globalist uh, uh, mindsets. So from uh, this perspective, there is tremendous uncertainty because this is only the first year of his presidency and we still don't know what the next three years or maybe seven would look like under this Trump administration. 
And certainly we can expect more uncertainties at the global level if, I believe, which is very likely, he sticks to his America first approach to global affairs. The second uncertainty is at the regional level. As we have seen just recently, in the past week actually, when Trump was in Asia visiting Japan, South Korea, China, Vietnam, and the Philippines. The past 12 days have not been easy for many people in Asia, probably except Beijing. Now, he did not actually abandon the traditional alliance relationship with allies such as Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. But you can see the anxiety and the worries and the concerns on the part of those countries. Particularly when Trump made a speech about economic nationalism and the globalization in Vietnam during the APEC meeting, Chinese President Xi Jinping made a different speech calling for more openness, more globalization, and a more inclusive, interconnected world. And that two speeches made a very interesting contrast. And they had very interesting impact, I believe, on, the, on the, some of the Asian countries. And this reminds us, in January, when Chinese President Xi Jinping went to Davos again, delivering a strong speech in the defense of globalization. So putting all this together, I think it's clear to many of us that even at the regional level, the uncertainty posed by this Trump administration is clear and it's probably going to stay with us for some time. And again, you can see that some Asian countries worried about this future uncertain US policy toward Asia are beginning to restore their relations with China. And on the bilateral level, we can also see some evidence of uncertainty. Remember last year during the summer when then candidate Donald Trump talked about China. He was talking about how Chinese economy was hurting the US economy by taking away American jobs and creating a lot of challenges and pressures for the US economy. He threatened with more than 40% of tariffs on Chinese products. He threatened a trade war. And after he was sworn in, he threatened to label China uh, as currency manipulator in early spring. And then he made some warnings about a coming trade war uh, with China. And now this is November. This is toward the end of this year. None of those things has happened yet. And of course, there is still a possibility that some kind of economic uh, conflict, friction, uh, friction, or even a trade war might occur sometime in the future. Nonetheless, his rhetorics 
during the campaign period and even in the first part of this year are a very interesting contrast with his actual policies toward China. So all of this would make people wonder, does the administration have a co coherent Asia policy or even a China policy? The answer, I think, at least from my perspective, is not clear. And that would also add another layer of worry and concern for many uh, of US partners in Asia. So if we put all this together, it's not difficult to come to the conclusion that the uncertainties, three types of uncertainties, indeed are hurting US global image and the US global standing. The real question is, to what degree can China benefit from this new uncertainty and this uh, new attitude by the US government? Here we have three different answers. The first answer is China will benefit tremendously from this new uncertainty as a result of this new uh, administration. The second answer is China will benefit somewhat, a little bit from this new uncertainty. And the third answer is, the third answer is China will not benefit at all from this uh, new uncertainty. I think you can find some evidence to support each answer, but I will try to support the second answer um, instead of the first one and the third, uh, instead of first and the third, third one. The evidence is the following. First of all, whether China can establish its dominant position in Asia is actually a very complicated question. It depends on so many factors, such as China's domestic development, the development of other countries in Asia, including Japan, India, and ASEAN as a whole. And also, it depends on the long-term trajectory of China's rise in Asia and beyond. And because of those reasons, I believe the US retreating from Asia if it's sustainable, indeed will generate some maneuvering space for other countries in Asia, but it's not only China. Other countries, major powers in Asia, such as Japan and India and others, can also take initiative to establish their positions in Asia and even beyond. For example, just one month ago, people were worried that the TPP would be dead forever. But three days ago, it came back to life in Vietnam under the leadership, I would say, of Japan. And of course, there are other countries in Asia who have the capabilities and who have the intentions to play a leadership role in Asia and beyond. So in that sense, leadership role in Asia or beyond is plural. It's not limited to one country. It's not limited to the US. It's not limited to China. So it doesn't matter who is going to play the leadership role as long as the benefits will be public, collective, and inclusive. So China has a chance too, 
of course. And, what, and the other thing I think supports my answer to the question is because, as we all know, China has a long history, depending on your perspective, <coughs> ranging between 3,000 years to 5,000 years. We're not the longest because Egypt has 8,000 year history. Put that into context, four years, eight years, seven years is not too much time for China. And also because Chinese President Xi Jinping already laid out the long-term vision for China. China will strive to become a leading world power by the year 2050. So whether or not to seize the opportunity provided by Trump administration's uncertainty to establish its firm position in Asia is actually not a major question for China today. So 12 years ago, the former Deputy Secretary of State, Robert Zollick, used the term responsible stakeholder to describe China's future role in global affairs. Today, I think we need a new term. That is because China's status, power, ambition all have grown. But I think Zolik was right when he was talking about the responsible part. China today needs a new term which would be beneficial to China and also other countries in the future. And that new term, I think, would be responsible leadership. That has two components, being responsible and take the leadership role. I think by working together with other Asian countries, and particularly the US, this goal will be achieved and for the collective benefits of all countries involved. Thank you very much. Great. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you to CSIS and China Power, but especially to my friend Bonnie Glazer, not just for inviting me, but for inviting me back. It is always good to get asked to the dance. It is much better to get the second date. Um, some of you may actually have been in this room when last year I stood on this stage, I know you were, Mike McDevitt, and I was crushed like a bug by my friend Mike Lampton. Uh, I think when the debate started, Mike had 90%, and I had 5%, 10%, does that add up to 100? Um, uh, but uh, to be fair to me, if you want to be charitable, my friend Bonnie, we're good friends, but you were a little bit mischievous, you gave me a very difficult proposition to argue, and even though I lost, I still gained in the voting by about 30 points by the time it was done. Now, fortunately for me, Despite your vote at the beginning of this, I would argue that this proposition is decidedly easier for me this year. And I'm gonna to try to make that case to you. Now, remember, this is a debate. So we're not debating China's rise, which is a fact. China has a much larger economy than it did in 1997, 1967, 1957. The proposition is very specific, and it has two parts to it. Beijing, will effectively utilize the uncertainty of the Trump presidency to firmly become the leader of Asia. One part of that is about the Trump presidency. In other words, it is because of something that began on January 20th, 2017, at precisely the stroke 
of 12 noon that will enable China to somehow exercise leadership in this part of the world. And then second, that China will firmly establish itself as the leader. So what I want to do is kind of pick apart each of those propositions for you. I'm going to start with the part related to the Trump administration. And I'm going to argue to you that in fact it is structural realities, economic gravity, facts of geography, not January 20th, 2017, that is primarily responsible for those things that we see about China that suggest the potential for leadership in this part of the world. And by the way, as Chen Dingding said, those things are not just a China story either. And in fact, it's because we in Washington and the United States are losing the thread on this Asian drama and thinking of everything in this region that is changing as Sino-centric that we miss some of that story. And then second, I want to take the second part, which is that China will become the leader of Asia. And I'm not going to give you a pithy definition of leadership, but I think I know it when I see it. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the pieces of what I think constitutes leadership in this part of the world, and I'm going to try to make the case to you that China has none of those requisites of leadership. And so, if China is ever going to be the leader of Asia, it's going to have to turn its policies around and some of its relationships in this part of the world. All right. So let me take the Trump part first. Um, in fact, there are many changes taking place in Asia, and that have taken place over the last couple of decades that are working in China's favor.、Um, and many of these are expense, at the expense of the United States, because while the United States' role in this part of the world, particularly economically, is growing in absolute terms, it is receding in relative terms almost everywhere, but as a function of structural change. This predates, as I said, January 20th, 2017. It is largely structural, and it is not necessarily Sino-centric. It is affecting other countries in Asia as well. Now, China does lie very much at the center of that story, but it's a decades-long story that goes back at least to the 1990s. Now, to illustrate that, let me give you a few examples from ASEAN, from Central Asia. And from India, from 2000 to 2009, this is during the George W. Bush administration, not the Donald J. Trump administration. China's share of ASEAN's total trade increased threefold, surpassing the United States, whose share declined by a third during the same period. Now, if you fast forward to 2014, again we're in the Barack Obama administration, not the Donald J. Trump administration. This picture looks even more mismatched. China comprised 11.6 percent of ASEAN exports to the U.S.'s 9.5 percent, and even as the U.S. seemed to be losing the game to China as a demand driver for ASEAN for Southeast Asia,、um, the, also, the U.S. was also losing as an exporter to ASEAN economies. China started to really thump the U.S. here. Uh, by 10 percentage points, 17 and a half percent of ASEAN imports to just 7.3 percent for the United States.、Um, again, that story predates 2017 and is largely structural in nature. Now, in fact, this story extends beyond Southeast Asia, and you can take it to almost any region of Asia and see it replicated again and again. Okay, let's take Central Asia as an example, and then we'll take India as an example. I'm going to give you eight-year increments on Central Asia. In 2000. China comprised 2.9 percent of Central Asia's trade, based on direction of trade statistics. Russia comprised 26.7 percent. By 2008, 
Eight years later, China's share had quadrupled to 16%, while Russia's share had shrunk by about a quarter during the same period to about 20. By 2016, you could look at almost any bilateral in Central Asia, and China had an absolutely dominant role in this picture. But again, this is 2016, and who hasn't taken office yet? Donald John Trump. Kyrgyzstan, China, 48% of Kyrgyz trade. Turkmenistan, 43% of trade. Tajikistan, 36% of trade. Kazakhstan, 20% of trade, and so on. And that's just trade. I'm not even putting foreign direct investment for these big infrastructure projects in the picture. So is China bulking larger in the economic affairs of its neighbors and potentially the strategic affairs? Absolutely. Does this have anything to do with the uncertainty of the Trump administration? No, it doesn't. Back to the proposition. Now, how about India? Um, 2000, 2008, 2016, I'll give you increments again. 2000, $2.9 billion in India-China trade. 2008, it's grown to 43 billion. By 2016, 71 billion. Incontestable that as China's economy has grown, its trade picture, its investment profile has grown all over the region. But lest you think this supports the proposition, I take you back again to the date. Um, these things are facts, but they are facts unrelated to the Trump administration and not related to the uncertainty that may or may not be generated by that. In fact, if I had to pick a date that really begins to explain some of this change, it would not be 2017. It would be 2008, which was the date of the global financial crisis. Um, for one thing, although the United States still bulks very large in the global economy and in the Asian economy, it is in relative terms not nearly as large as it was in 2008, much less 1998. Right? So the financial crisis of 2008 bookended this very tumultuous decade that began with the Asian crisis in 97, 98, moves up to the global crisis in 2008, and that really begins to scramble uh, the relationship between traditional export markets in the West, where export-led Asian economies could count on robust growth, uh, and the way many of those economies and their leaders began to think about their future. And this was the point at which in many economies, not just China, South Korea, export-led economies all over Southeast Asia, people began to think in new ways about domestic demand as a driver, an intra-regional hedge against uncertainty, emerging market demand as a way to swap out for demand in traditional export markets, where they were looking in the United States at slow growth as far as the eye can see, and in Europe it is at austerity as far as the eye can see. Now, that's not the end of the story. There's also the change in the demand picture, right? G7 economies were important demand drivers for export-led growth in Asia. But increasingly, in a number of areas, the other foot now wears the shoe. Asian consumption is becoming important to American exporters and European exporters. And this is a picture that has enabled China's so-called leadership, but which, again, has a trend line that extends back well before 2017 and has nothing to do with our present administration. So whether it's soybeans for animal feed or it's pork for their tables or natural gas for their power plants, it is true that Asia has become a growth engine in many areas as a consumer. But again, this is a decades-long process that has taken place for a while. Asia has become a source of capital, not just a capital recipient. Again, a long-term trend over time. And fourth, among emerging powers, including but not limited to China, and here I would cite India as well,
there is a certain dissatisfaction with the prevailing institutional architecture in Asia and globally. It's hard for me to find a country other than Japan that is more ambivalent about the rise of Chinese power than India. And yet, what country has participated with China in developing the BRICS institutions? Which country is the second largest shareholder in the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which I presume many people would cite as case number one of China becoming the leader of Asia? Well, it's India, a country deeply suspicious about Chinese power. Um, so these are all structural trends that have taken place over time. Now, is there uncertainty associated with the Trump presidency? Of course there's a certainty. <laughs> you know, and Chen Jingding talked about some of this, and we've been hearing about this all day. But in the Asian context, I would argue that the place where this has really been most manifest is in the trade space. And what has happened as the United States is supposedly receding from the trade space? Has China stepped into the breach? Has the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is ostensibly a Chinese vehicle, but which actually is not a Chinese vehicle because it's built on an ASEAN backbone, has that stepped into the bridge? Absolutely not. It is who? As Chen Dingding, who helpfully made my case for me, said, it is the TPP-11. So who is dealing with the uncertainty generated by the Trump presidency in the trade space? Japan is stepping into the bridge. Australia is stepping into the bridge. And so far, China has talked a lot about stepping into the breach, but I personally have not seen a lot of successes or tangible manifestations that would lead me to say China is emerging as some kind of leader of this region. Now, that brings us to the other part of the proposition. Okay? Will China firmly establish itself as the leader of Asia? Um, as I said, I'm not going to define leadership for you, but I think most of us probably know what leadership looks like when we see it. And in the Asian context, I would argue that the leader of Asia would have to have a few requisites in place. Let me just tick down these and then I'll walk you through them quickly. One, an economy that can be translated into strategic power. Two, a grand strategic concept that leverages economic, military, and diplomatic power all together toward a larger strategic goal. Third, a model that others not only want to emulate, but actually can emulate. Fourth, the leader has to have followers. If you don't have followers, you're not much of a leader. You're just by your lonesome. Fifth, that means you need to be able to crowd out competitors, in part by leveraging the requisites of your power. And last, you need to have a serious ability to contend for primacy. Now, if you walk down each of those, I would argue that China has none of those requisites. Does it have an economy that can be translated into strategic power? Well, it certainly has a growing economy, and it has an economy that's integrated with other Asian economies in all sorts of ways. Can it leverage that into strategic power? Well, look at Japan, look at Australia, look at India. These are countries where China's either the number one trading partner. In the Australian case, Chinese demand has powered resource-led exports out of Australia, helped Australia pull through the financial crisis. Japan, a lot of trade integration, Japanese investment in China. These countries are deeply ambivalent about China. So that economic integration has not overcome the problems of security fragmentation. So this theme of economics and security in collision, we see in microcosm in China's big economic relationships around the region. The reality is China's becoming more integrated, but everybody's afraid of them. And so if you scare your neighbors silly, that doesn't translate into strategic weight, much less leadership. They also, as I suspect we're gonna hear in the next session, don't have an economy that's necessarily gonna be smooth sailing all the way. They got short-term problems, like overcapacity and market confidence. They got midterm problems like debt and leverage, municipal and corporate 
throughout the system. And long term, let's face it, they need a growth model. They need a new growth model with new growth drivers. And even their own leaders say that, which is why as far back as 2007, Prime Minister Wen Jiabao was talking about an economy that was unbalanced, uncoordinated, unstable, and unsustainable. I didn't say it. The Prime Minister of China said it. That doesn't sound like an economy that's ready for leadership. Um, a grand strategic concept that leverages all of these elements together. We heard a lot about the Belt and Road. We've heard a lot about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Let us not conflate all these things together. The AIIB is a multilateral development bank in which China has the overwhelming largest number of votes in the voting shares, but where, in time, its share will be diluted. Um, the Belt and Road, by contrast, is a bilateral initiative who, as Josh argued this morning, the outlines are still unclear, the future is uncertain. You really have to look at the Belt and Road at a granular level, not in the aggregate, project by project, to see where success is. And you're gonna see a lot of failures, as you always do in the infrastructure business. You wanna be the leader, you gotta integrate all these things together. You need a model that others want to emulate and can emulate. Now, there is no question, as a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State twice over in the Bush administration, who dealt with a lot of authoritarian regimes, that a model that combines authoritarian politics with developmental economics is attractive to Uzbekistan, to Kazakhstan, to lots of countries around China's periphery, okay? But it is not attractive because they're necessarily gonna be like China or wanna be like China. It is intuitively attractive. It's authoritarian developmentalism. What's not attractive about that if you're an authoritarian who wants to develop your economy? So this is an intuitive concept. It's not one that's easily translatable. And by the way, China's Leninist system combined with economic developmentalism, which has a large element of statism with big, powerful state-owned enterprises at every level, that is not something that is easily to replicate, even if it could be. And a lot of these economies have other models too. Kazakhstan used to talk about Singapore a lot. Clean governance, developmental economy, dominated by one political party, the People's Action Party. That looked attractive. Kazakhstan had a clustering economic strategy. Was that modeled on China? No, it was modeled on Michael Porter in Harvard Business School. That's where they were taking their advice from. Last couple of points, and then I'll stop. You need followers if you want to be the leader. And when I look around China's periphery, these could be allies, but they could also be bandwagoners, not just allies. But I don't see a lot of allies, and I sure as heck don't see a lot of bandwagoners, certainly not in Asia. China is surrounded by large powers, Japan, India, the United States, which is, after all, a Pacific power and present through its alliances and its forward-deployed military presence. But it's also surrounded by middle powers, and it's surrounded by big military powers, blue water navies, latent nuclear weapons powers, big economies that are not entirely dependent on them, that have other sources of demand, even though China is becoming an important trading partner, and in most cases is the biggest trading partner, and so on. So that's in Asia. And if I project the picture out globally, China's attractiveness is heavily tied to its money, let's face it. So if that money dries up, that model may not look so attractive, and that relationship may not look so attractive anymore. No money, no Chinese leadership. That's my hypothesis. Okay, last point. You gotta crowd out competitors, and I'm sorry, but Whatever you want to argue about uncertainty, the United States isn't going anywhere. By virtue of geography, history, economic gravity, and strategic reality, and the fact that every country around China's periphery wants us there in one form or, no or another, combined with the fact of all of these middle 
and larger powers around China's periphery. China is in a strategic situation where it can't simply crowd out competitors. The TPP is often used as an example of how the United States is walking away. But you know, that's about standard setting and rule setting and norm setting, not about business. You wanna look at investment in Asia? The American companies have 225 billion or more of direct investment in the 10 ASEAN countries alone. Australia, China bulks very large in the trade picture. The investment picture, who is it? It's the United States by a multiple, by a multiple. So China's rising, it's intuitive, but crowding out all competitors, removing all comers from the picture, it's not gonna happen. And the last thing I'll say, it's often asserted that China wants to push the United States out of Asia. That may or may not be true. I came not a mind reader of what may be going on in the leadership in China in terms of their strategic thinking. But the reality is the United States isn't going anywhere if it plays its cards right. And the fact is that as long as we have alliances and we have forward deployed military presence and we have companies and leading edge technologies and we trade and we invest and the United States has the right kind of policies for the region, something we've discussed a lot here, including last year on this stage, China will not be able to exercise leadership because it'll have too many competitors for the mantle. That's what we saw with TPP-11. That's what we're seeing with this collision between economics and security. And that means, from my vantage point, China can't contest for primacy in Asia. And that's the core of the question. A more multipolar Asia is not an Asia that means Chinese primacy, a Sinocentric Asia. And I think the challenge for the United States is this Asian drama of a more Asian Asia, a more pan-Asian Asia, where others, not the United States, set the rules. But the idea that Japan and India are just gonna roll over and accept Chinese dictated rules, I don't believe it. And I think that's the challenge China has to overcome if it wants to be the leader of the region. I don't see it. Thanks. Okay, back to you, uh, Chen Ding Ding. Does China have what it takes to be the leader of Asia and anything else you would like to talk about in five minutes? Well, I would say China is already a leader in Asia. And the assumption that leadership is singular, is not a plural, I think is wrong. If you think of leadership as collective effort, and I agree with Evan, U.S. leadership will stay in Asia, but there's also Chinese leadership. There's also Japanese leadership in some cases, in the recent example of TPP. So I think this is one assumption we needed to uh, think about first, whether we see this zero-sum uh, assumption in this debate, which I uh, sort of uh, have my doubts. So in that sense, I mean, everybody can contribute to leadership in Asia. And I, I think uh, in, in that regard, I would uh, stick to my proposition that China is already one leader, not the leader in Asia. And also the key question is not in the future whether China would uh, push U.S. out of Asia. I think that's the wrong question to ask. The U.S. is a resilient system. It will remain number one superpower in the coming decades. And China would become a strong power by 2050, but it's not going to replace the U.S. as the hegemon or dominant power in Asia or beyond. So to even think about 
China would push U.S. out of Asia, or the U.S. would decline to the degree that would no longer remain a superpower, I think that's simply the wrong question to ask in the first place. So Asia is big enough to accommodate more than one leader and more than one type of leadership. And ASEAN can be a leader as well in certain uh, regards. So uh, also the question is whether the uncertainties resulting from the Trump administration in the next three years or seven years would help China establish its position. I think it's probably too early to answer that question because it's not been a year yet, and also it's because we needed to distinguish between realities and the perception. I think, Evan, you are right. In realities, U.S. is still the dominant power in many regards in Asia. But it, the interesting question is the perception seems to be changing. And perception is also very important. It drives many countries' foreign, plus, uh, foreign policy behavior. It drives mindsets and the thinking processes of many countries. And I think in that regard, the shift is tilting toward China's favor. And you, we have only seen less than one year. Imagine what three years would make it look like, what seven years would make it look like. Even if the U.S. remains the superpower, which I believe it will, for coming decades, would it be difficult to roll back the three years' time or forbidden seven years' time. Thank you. Well, um, unlike Josh Eisenman sitting in front of me, I was not a high school debate champion. I wasn't even on the debate team. But I have learned you never argue with the proposition, or else you get in trouble with Bonnie. <laughs> the proposition, I'm looking at it, says China will be the leader of Asia. The leader. I stand by what I said in my argument. Second, I appreciate Chen Ningding saying that the United States would remain the dominant power in Asia for the foreseeable future. I appreciate that because that doesn't sound like China's the leader. That sounds like the United States is the leader, at least for now. Um, third, I repeat something I said up here. A more multi multipolar doesn't mean one country exercises primacy. And primacy doesn't mean hegemony, by the way. So if we're talking about leadership, you need to have some of the requisites of primacy. And I tried to make, you can decide whether I made that case effectively or not but I'm not seeing it. Um, I think the longer-term question is not about the Trump presidency. So again, I'm not gonna argue with the question. Um, American leadership, particularly in the Pacific, was based on the fact that the United States was the principal provider of both security-related public goods and economic-related public goods. I'm sorry, but until China and Japan have a Franco-German moment, there is no basis for collective security in the Pacific. I'll say that again. There is no basis for collective security in the Pacific. So the United States was, is, and as far as my eyes can see, going to continue to be the principal provider of security-related public goods and other benefits for everybody except who? The challenger for leadership in the proposition. And I don't see any sign that's happening. Now, on the economic side, and this is why I raised the question about TPP. The United States will never again be the demand driver that it was 
for export-led growth in Asia in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. But that wasn't the only basis of American economic goods provision. We also were the leader on regional and global trade liberalization. So if you wanted to run this argument that Chen Ding Ding's making, you have to, you'd have to argue, in my view, that the United States is kind of becoming the Hessians of Asia. We're going to be the security provider. Like, you know, remember the Hessians? They were George Washington's rented German sold mercenaries during the Revolutionary War. So we will be the security providers, but we will recede from this economic public goods role. But what did I argue up here? The United States may or may not be receding, but if you're going to use TPP as your example, Japan and many others stepped into the breach. And so, again, I would argue the story is not a Sinocentric story. It's a story of pan-Asian regionalism taking on dynamics that will change the region in ways that the United States has not foreseen and not caught up to. That is not about the Trump presidency. That was a problem in the Obama presidency. I served in the Bush administration. We didn't get that either. So, so I stand by what I argued about the proposition, but I do think there are challenges ahead for American policy. Okay, I'm glad you're not challenging the proposition, but you've, uh, you've deconstructed it quite well. Uh, we are going to uh, give you all in the audience an opportunity to ask some questions uh, over the next 15 minutes before we vote again. Um, so once again, please wait for the microphone to come to you. Gentleman in the back first, go up here. Right over there. Uh, Dan Lieberman, I'm a writer. Uh, the United States is kind of uncertain what to do in North Korea, so they've turned to China to try to have China resolve the situation. The United States is kind of uncertain about uh, how they should do increase their defense policy. So they turn to say China is increasing its military. We must have to re uh, increase that military. United States is uncertain of why it has its uh, deficit and balance of payments. And although Japan has manipulated the yen from 79 to almost 120, they turn to China and say China's manipulating the currency. So it seems the United States is shown by its uncertainty that it regards China as the leader of Asia. Okay, not a question, but a comment. Do you want to? It was, it was a question? <laughs> it sounded more like a comment. Because it's asking China to pitch in on the North Korea issue, for example? Yeah, I, oh, that be, because we want Chinese assistance, that implies we want China to be a, the leader of Asia. Okay, Evan? Well, I, would, I wouldn't say that's about ceding leadership to China. That's about matching means to ends and tactics to strategy, right? China happens to have instruments of leverage over North Korea that the United States doesn't have. The United States has other instruments of leverage. So a strategy would deploy all the elements of national power, but also leverage alliances and partnerships to try to send the North Koreans the the right message and hope that they draw the right conclusions. And we all know North Korea, North Korea policy is the land of lousy options. And in a land of lousy options, China's uh, latent leverage, in other words, the kind of coercive economic leverage that it has but chooses not to use, in contrast, for example, to the leverage that it has but is using over certain other countries in the, in the Asia Pacific region is something the United States would have to take into account. From my mind, taking into account Others' capabilities as part of your effort to match means to ends in a strategy isn't a sign that you're ceding leadership. It's just, it's just a practical adjustment of policy. 
Okay, the front, Mike McDevitt. Uh, thanks, Bonnie. Uh, Mike McDevitt. Two very compelling presentations. Um, uh, Dr. Chen uh, mentioned China's history uh, in the context of an ancient civilization and what have you. I, uh, the one thing that Evan didn't mention, or at least implied, is I think China's history is uh, a vote against China's leadership because all the rest of China's neighbors uh, can think back over centuries, or more recently, of being, of being uh, forced into, uh, if you will, uh, tributary positions, and more recently, South Korea being slapped around for looking after its own defense being slapped around economically. And so the example of China's history, ancient and current, I would suggest to you uh, makes most of its neighbors nervous if in fact China was to become the leader of Asia. And to, if you will, to just elaborate on a point that uh, Evan made on the security architecture issue or, and the United States being the provider of, of, um, of security. One of the things that uh, is interesting that for the last 20 years that I can think back to, China has been doing its best to undermine the U.S. security architecture for East Asia unsuccessfully. In other words, saying that the, the hub and spoke or the alliances are, are uh, remnants of the Cold War are no longer relevant for the 21st century. That in itself is, that's how we provide our security, security public goods, as Evan put it. So, uh, it seems to me if China keeps nattering about that, one of the things that it recognizes it needs to become a leader uh, for Asia is to impose a Chinese security architecture, which seems to me to be a long time coming. Oh, want to comment? Well, uh, I mentioned the history not not to talk about the implications for the current relationships. I mentioned that only in the context of long-term strategic thinking. I mean, three years, seven years. But I think uh, your point about uh, the historical implications uh, is an important one. And I think that's why we believe this is a new era, not in the sense of China's own case. This is a modern era. This is a modern era of national sovereignty and the national independence. And the past of Chinese history dealing with its neighbors is the past. We are now in the modern era. That's why we believe a peaceful coexistence principle is important. I don't think anybody wants to go back to the tributary system even if somebody wants to go back, it's impossible. That's history. It's gone. But the future is open. And the future is about collective security, collective uh, provision of public goods, and collective leadership in Asia. I think China wants to be part of that. 
as in other countries, if they can see the benefits, they also wanted to join that undertaking, not in the, in the, in the, in the sense of zero-sum competition. And, uh, but I would agree, there's a lot of work to do for China and other countries in Asia. And I think they are wise countries, they have wise leaders, they can come down and work together and the future would be bright. Okay, another question? All right, woman in the back. Hi, I'm Lee Chang with ACPAC China Inc. This question is directed towards Evan. You get, even though you said you wouldn't define leadership, you actually gave a pretty comprehensive set of points about what leadership in Asia would look like, and you made the case rather effectively that China does not check off all those boxes. But do you believe the U.S. checks off all those boxes, or is there a single country in Asia that can really be, by your criteria, the leader? Sorry, Sorry just so I get that. Does the United States meet the criteria that I laid out? Yeah, to be leader. Okay. I'm going to have to remember the criteria that I <laughs> So I left my notes up on the podium. All right. I said, to be a leader, you got to have followers. Okay. Um, the, United States, the United States has a network of allies, security partnerships, countries that have emulated elements of its political and economic model, uh, countries that may not be following the U.S. in the literal sense, but which, in the case of TPP-11, for example, we're picking up not every element of the text that was negotiated when the United States was in the room, but many, many elements of it, um, which suggests a common commitment to many of the, what the United States called standards, uh, or the notion of economic openness. It included things that were behind and across the border. It's not just a tariff agreement. Um, so that suggests the United States, not out, it has followers. That was one of mine. A second one was countries that are interested in and can emulate your model. We certainly have that. Um, the United States have the ability to crowd out competitors. It's getting harder. That's why I mentioned multipolar. It's becoming more multipolar. Economically, it already is. There are more players on the chessboard. You know, Joe Nye at Harvard used to have this notion of a three-dimensional chessboard, right? The economic realm was already kind of multipolar. Security, it absolutely was not. Still largely unipolar in a lot of ways, at the global level anyway. Um, I think you know, the region is changing in ways that the United States has to adapt to. Um, but the United States doesn't need to, I mean, the United States faces a challenge to its, its post-1960s primacy in many areas from China, but it is much better situated to deal with that challenge because of its alliances and partnerships and the strength of its economy, even with the challenges to its economy, than China is to do the reverse. So I'd say, yeah, the United States still ticks off pretty much all of those boxes, structurally, whatever you may think of policies of this or that administration. Um, and in any case, I go back to the question. Um, that wasn't a question. And on a question, China definitely doesn't meet the criteria. Does that, does that answer your question? Okay. Okay. Swim it over here. Uh, this question goes to, um, I'm Shanshan Liu from Middlebury Institute of International Study. This question goes to Professor uh, Chen. Um, so as um, the opponent has mentioned earlier, money drives China's leadership, no money, no leadership. And uh, no doubt that China has made strenuous effort and economic contribution to build up the ties between its uh, 
other countries. Uh, but China has been encountered the economic warmness and the political coldness with its neighboring countries. So how would China be able to lead under a very different, uh, not democratic and um, non-transparent political system? And how to lead without the established uh, and well-enforced system based on the rule of law? And not to mention, we speak a different language, and the culture is very different um, because we see as the descendant of the dragons. Um, so, and also the great convergence provide more constraint on the leadership today. Uh, so, how would China be able to exert its economic power and transfer them into uh, economic diplomacy and use them effectively to? Uh, enhance the ties between China and other countries. That's a very long question. I think so. <laughs> okay, uh, very long question if I remember. <laughs> um, well, I think there's no denying that China is facing lots of challenges. Uh, I think we don't need to deny that. that that's just a fact. Uh, but I think one advantage that China has, at least uh, from my perspective, is the um, determination and unity of the country together and trying to uh, realize uh, its own uh, Chinese dream. And in that process, also trying to uh, help to the degree that it can other developing countries to realize their dreams. I think this is an important goal. They should keep that in mind. And as long as they stick to this principle, I believe there's a very good chance that many developing countries, keep in mind there are more than 100 more than 150 developing countries out there that also want to have their own development. I think that's the biggest reason why in the future the Chinese solution or Chinese model, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't matter that much, would be an alternative option for other countries. And that partly also goes back to the question raised by uh, the lunch speaker, why Asian countries a few years ago <laughs> were asking the question, the American democracy is dead in Asia. It's, it's a rhetorical question, but I think behind that, there is a certain degree of uh, uh, truth in there. In, in this modern era, I think for many countries, they have their own priorities. Uh, so the lesson for China is to is not to impose its own will or Chinese model or whatever model on other developing countries. So they can choose whatever they want if they can see the benefits. They decide their own path. I think that's if in the future we see a success for China, that's the biggest reason. All right, one last question. Okay, go back over here. Uh, hi, 
<coughs> really from Ifat. I have a question like uh, for Ivan. You briefly mentioned the uh, Sankaku Islands, like in between the China, like the, the dispute in the East China Sea between China and Japan. Did you, like, I, I didn't get it wrong, right? <laughs> I, I didn't mention any of the island disputes. Oh, okay, all right. So, I was like, arguing at a more macro level. Okay, so like we, but you br briefly mentioned the point that uh, China and Japan reaching to like a collective national like I mean security, like a more like a pan-Asian strategy. Uh, would you believe that like uh, issues like Senkaku Islands dispute or like more general like uh, political, uh, like ide ideological conflict would be the more like uh, fundamental reason for uh, two countries not reaching to this like idea, or would you say? Like uh, it's like Sankaku Island. These like particular issues are contributing to the situation like this. I guess I'd, I'd say it's all of the above. I mean, my point was if you look at what enabled the peace of Europe in the post 1945 period, apart from the U.S. role and the changing the Soviet threat, the changing structure of power internationally, it was that France and Germany, as core continental European powers that had you know fought so many wars managed to make a piece of Europe together. So my view would be, I mean, I, I don't love using European analogies in Asia, but the, the point is, until China and Japan are able to reach some kind of security-related modus vivendi that is not perfectly analogous to, but roughly analogous to, the way France and Germany have jointly enabled the peace of continental Europe since 1945, it is hard for me to see how you could have a basis for collective much less cooperative security in the Pacific among the major security players and powers. Okay, and that's just China, Japan. Now throw in Korea, the future of which is unresolved. There's Taiwan, there's these island disputes that you mentioned. So I don't see it. So if there's no basis for collective security, then my point was the United States will still be the security partner of choice for everybody in the region, pretty much except China, which is clearly uncomfortable with many aspects of the American security role in the Pacific, with the alliances, with some of what the US is doing with non-allied security partners and so on. But if you want to argue this question, you know, the US is fading, there's uncertainty, that part is not uncertain. There's no uncertainty to me that China and Japan are gonna have a Franco-German moment. There's no uncertainty the United States is gonna still be an important security provider in a region for ourselves and for others. So, that, so that, that was my point. That was how I was trying to deploy the European analogy. Okay, thanks to all of you. We're back to voting. Grab those clickers. Make sure they're on and cast your vote. Beijing will effectively utilize the uncertainty of the Trump presidency to firmly establish China as the leader of Asia. Do you vote yes or no? And while you're all voting, I want to all encourage you to uh, take a look at our website if you haven't. Uh, chinapower.csis.org, where you can see all of our terrific data and analysis. I do podcasts every couple of weeks. I've done, I think, about 35 of them um, so far. They're all fabulous. And let me thank um, our major, our, our, our funder, uh, for not just for this conference, but for um, all of the work that we do on our website, and that is the Carnegie Corporation uh, of New York, to which we are extremely grateful um, for all of their support. So as the votes here are coming in, we'll remind you what we had before. We had 79% voting yes, 
and we had 22% voting no. Yeah. This is a historical year than last year. A historical <laughs> shift. This is why we invited Evan yeah, back. We had to give him another chance, <laughs> where we now have 33% in favor and 67% against. Thank you all. I hope you'll all stay for our one last uh, proposition. Uh, which is about whether Xi Jinping is going to make economic liberalization a higher priority during his uh, second term. Very policy relevant, interesting proposition, and we have great speakers. So you may go grab your final cup of coffee um, and come back in 10, 15 minutes and we'll have the last debate. Thank you.